Our Common Nature, an exaltation of our living earth, an exploration of our niche within it, and an examination of the lasting solutions we will create by shifting our culture through care, wisdom, and working in community with the earth toward accordance with its way. In this space, we highlight place, building bridges, and finding solutions in the common ground on which we all stand. It is with gratitude and humility that we acknowledge that we are speaking, learning, and broadcasting from the ancestral homelands of the Mohican people, who are the indigenous peoples of this land. Despite tremendous hardship on being forced from here, today their community resides in Wisconsin and is known as the Stockbridge Muncie community. We pay honor and respect to their ancestors past and present as we commit to building a more inclusive and equitable space for all. Well, welcome. Thank you for joining us on Our Common Nature. Uh, today, I have with me Emerson and Lizzie Martin. And uh, if you'd like, please tell us about your your journey into farming and getting to know each other and going from there. Yeah, thank you, Seamus. It's been a real pleasure to be here, and I'm excited about you know talking to you for the next hour, and um, also just sharing the space with Lizzie because we don't get to spare, share a lot of professional space these days because we had a little child born last year. So it's it's nice to you know get away from that and reflect on our farming journeys. But congratulations! I, thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's it's puts everything into context when it comes to farming a little bit when there's a little one uh, running around. Sure. So we, um, well, me personally, um, I was raised on a small hobby farm. Um, my parents did everything from raising goats to raising some cattle. Um, primarily, we grew up, me and my sisters, through the 4-H program, and we all had dairy goats. Um, Where was raised, that? That was over in uh, Sheffield, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. cool. so about 45 minutes from here, um, just over the Taconic Mountains. And uh, yeah, so it was a, it was a real um, life changing experience growing up on a farm. My mom, my mother, really um, took pride in her gardens and really tried to grow as much food for our family as possible. And it really instilled a deep appreciation for nature and for the world around me. Um, and I always knew that I wanted to continue something like that um, mm -hmm. as an adult, and also instill that same. Um, impression on my children. So um, after college, I went to school for environmental design. And after college, I really was starting to study more about like how I can work on designing landscapes that are um, both agricultural, ecological, but then also invoke a, a spiritual nature in the participant of it. So that brought me to biodynamic agriculture and ultimately to this community that we're in right now, sure. um, which has many different biodynamic communities, um, the Camp Hill communities, but then also Hawthorne Valley, which is a very prominent biodynamic uh, community. And so uh, there's this Hudson Valley biodynamic group that we were uh, gathering once a month. I was commuting over here from Massachusetts and 
um, the more I learned about it and got to know the people in this area, the more I wanted to live here and, and settle down and uh, pursue my dreams of uh, starting a farm here. Uh, definitely specializing in some sort of uh, livestock, but then also in the back of my head, I really wanted to uh, pursue the horticulture as well and the tree crops. So, and at that time, I wasn't aware of agroforestry and I wasn't aware of the integration of livestock and trees, but it made a lot of sense to me. And when that came about, it, um, I really wanted to pursue that path as well. Cool. Yeah, we'll get into that for sure. Yeah. yeah. Lizzie, how about awesome. your turn? Yeah, a bit more humble, but um, I've always just really been into animals and I went to school for animal science. Um, in particularly livestock. Um, I went to school in Massachusetts, and after college, I was kind of figuring out what I wanted to do, and I couldn't really get a job in Boston, and my sister sent me this um, job listing for Kinderhook Farm in Ghent. She's like, I heard the Hudson Valley is really hip. You should go check it out. <laughs> I'm like, I've never heard of the Hudson Valley, but sure. What was that? What, what, do you write about what year? I'm oh, curious. Maybe 2000. 13 or 14. Okay, yeah. 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 And I applied for the apprenticeship and mm -hmm. I got it. And cool. I started working at Kinderhook Farm and I learned about all different types of livestock and rotational grazing, which I never knew existed going to school for uh, animal science because it's, it's very conventional what you're learning there. It's like feed rationing and um, things like that. So my mind was totally blown. Um, raising animals on just grass and rotating them. And I just really love the life, like the lifestyle. And mm -hmm. um, I want to continue doing that. And um, so I ended up sticking around again because I reconnected with Emerson, who I knew in school, and found out he was working on a farm and had some goats. And I was like totally so excited for that because <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to get my own sheep. Um, and I ended up getting my own sheep and starting um, my own little flock mm -hmm. there. And it pretty much we just meld the goats and the sheep together. And we just grew from there to develop into Woven Stars Farm. Yeah, okay. And so were you... Tell me about Woven Stars. Tell me about first what are you doing now and, and can maybe get into the journey. Yeah, yeah. so um, Woven Stars Farm is a small diversified livestock farm. We mm -hmm. raise... Um, a little bit of everything. So we have cows, sheep, goats, chickens, pigs, ducks, um, and where they're all raised on pasture. So they're all rotationally grazed and all of our ruminates are 100% grass fed and grass finished. Um, and we practice a lot of like regenerative like livestock principles mm -hmm. um, such as we're certified organic and um, Rotational grazing and, uh, you know, other stuff, bale grazing, things like mm -hmm. that. Sure. Yeah. yeah, really, really focusing on building our soils. Um, the the land that we've been on for most of the time that Woven Stars has been in, in existence um, was extremely depleted and mm -hmm. um, really abused land. True. It was, um, they tried to grow corn, historically tried to grow corn on it. There's very thin soils with rock outcroppings. And um, really, we happened upon it because no other farmer wanted to put in the work to mm -hmm. restore this land. And 
And it was mostly um, goldenrod and uh, poison ivy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And cranking yeah. aspen. Yeah. So we, the animals are really the, the stars of the show sure. because we, we adjusted the numbers of particular animals and having that diversity so that um, we could best utilize what the mm -hmm. environment is that was given to us. Yeah. So we originally had a lot more goats because goats specialize in those sorts of plants. Yeah, brambles and <laughs> yeah, stuff. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, and they absolutely loved them. And they did such a great job. And then eating over... the poison ivy, eating because I remember my first sorry to interrupt my, my first yeah. visit to to see woven stars. You walked me through. You actually still had. I don't know if you still do. Had patches of how it was when you first got there. And it was like you said, poison ivy, mm. poplar, scrub, yeah. yeah, on gravel, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. yeah, and it was just the goats that did that. What, what how, you say? You put the animals to work, and 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 mm -hmm. is that the work that you mean when you say other people didn't want to put in the time to make it? Yeah, farmable. Yeah, I think I think our dedication to diversity and realizing that letting letting the enterprise tell us what the, you know, the land needs um, and mm -hmm. being open to that was the work. You know, I think a lot of people in the current agricultural uh, world really try, they, they get their mindset on a particular enterprise and they force the land into that submission where we should be really reflecting and asking the land, like, what should we be putting here? Mm -hmm. Should this be a forest? Should this be, should we put sheep here? Should we put chickens here? Um, should we put goats here? Like what, what can we do to work with the land opposed to working against it? Sure. And that's like one of those fundamental like permaculture principles that we all like really embody is that, you know, really letting nature uh, take the lead on that. Mm -hmm. And when we first started Woven Stars Farm, we just had sheep and goats. And we just felt like the small ruminants were the only ones that could really handle that type of forage. Um, cows would have just, you know, failed. They wouldn't mm -hmm. have done well. Um, so we started small. And with starting small, we ended up growing mushrooms for a little bit to help supplement income until our pastures were like at a level to really like expand the herd size. And then mm -hmm. we started introducing other types of animals as well. Mm -hmm. um, went like our carrying capacity grew. Yeah, very cool. And so what is, is there any land left that's scrubby pasture or I guess not pasture, but what does the landscape look like now? Cause it's been five, six years that you've been working at mm -hmm. working the land there. Yeah. 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 So there, there still is some some areas that are definitely less high quality forage for the animals, um, and that I think mostly lends to just the the general lack of topsoil in those spots um, and areas that we are. I think for the most part we're fine with like letting certain things because. Diversity is important for us, um, and it's especially important to have a diverse palette of forages for our animals. So we're we're happy to say that there's hardly any poison ivy on mm -hmm. the farm. Um, <laughs> we'd always like joke of like this, like it's called um, 
what's that techno it's yeah. like a <laughs> we're like we're like here's like the woven stars starter pack like techno because you, you just get like bulk yeah packs and like keep in yeah. the shower <laughs> so i'm happy that that is no longer a common pasture plant mm-hmm. but we still have patches of goldenrod and mm-hmm. um other scrubby things and but the you look at some just cattle pastures and it's like a ton of multi-floor rows because the cows just go through it and they they eat all around it and they they don't like the thorns on those but um which we still have multi-floor rows but it's suppressed to a point where it's like it's almost like a bonsai Mm -hmm. you know it's so gnarled because the goats and the sheep and and even the cows start like learning from these other animals and they're like oh you can eat that you just have to be (laughs) gentler and Mm -hmm. to see some of the things our cows eat like other cattle farmers are like no way a cow can eat that Mm -hmm. but they look and they learn and they see like these other because they're all together in one what we call a flirt the cows, the flock sheep, herd. Yeah, the flock flirt. and herd, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> mesh together, mm-hmm. and um, so it's it's really that's that in itself is also replicating um, systems in nature that there's multi species, you know, in Africa, mm-hmm. um, parts of the Serengeti, there's you know zebras and and wildebeest and gazelles, um, all grazing together, moving in this mm-hmm. one continuous flock, and they're occupying all these different levels of, of forage and having a different impact on the land. So it's, mm-hmm. um, it's great to see that, you know, in real time on our small little farm. Sure. Are you, so you're not separating the animals at all anymore from each other, like by, by species or time? Pretty much during the grazing season, we have everyone together. Um, mm-hmm. In the winter, we do separate them. And that's just because we're lambing and kidding and the cows are a bit rough and we put them in the barn. So mm-hmm. they're have a little separation there. But pretty much starting May to whenever we stop grazing, um, November or December, mm-hmm. we have them all together. Mm-hmm. And they do fine. It's, like, really beneficial. I'm not sure of, like, many other farms that do that, but I sure. think they should. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. And in, in the process of, of the specifically the regeneration of your landscape, was it just putting the animals on there, having them eat stuff and poop and keep walking? and Or was there other measures that you took to get it? Because it's really been a rapid transition, mm-hmm. it seems like. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's the, the animals, but then also Lizzie can maybe speak a little bit more about this in detail, but it's like those those tight pasture sizes and then the, the speed of movement of the animals. So mm-hmm. it, we're really, it's like intense grazing and letting it rest, intense and let it rest and getting through the farm um, in a, in a period of time where there's that recovery mm-hmm. period before they get to that other spot. So it's, um, it's really the how as much as the what and, sure. and how, how Lizzie is really, you know, dialed that in as well as like, you know, I think that, is a lot of the transition because as we know animals can have a really uh, detrimental impact on land Mm -hmm. um, if not um, treated properly so if you if we leave our sheep on a particular area for too long they'll graze it down almost to the roots Mm -hmm. and that recovery time is greatly reduced Um, but if before that point, if we can get them off of it and allow that grass to regrow, 
that's going to really start building the soil okay. because the dieback of those root systems and then the regrowth and the dieback and the regrowth. And that is, um, and then letting the manure incorporate in bringing back the biology of the soil. Like I remember the first couple of years, you'd see like animal manure from the first rotation by the time you get back mm -hmm. because there's just zero biology mm -hmm. in that soil to incorporate that manure into the 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 plant carbon that it it needs to grow. Sure. Now it's like you they 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 the manure drops and it's like gone and you see beetles flying, there's holes in it, there's fly, you know mm -hmm. everything is just like really just like all right, this is what we need and it just vanishes by the time they come they come back around. Sure. So, yeah, that the biology and the how is just mm -hmm. Yeah, really cool. important. Yeah. And Lizzie, so how have you dialed that in? What is... Yeah, um, there's no, like, scientific method. I, I use a lot of observation. Um, it's hard to, like, whenever I'm trying to, like, train someone who works on our farm, it's hard to, like, it's like not, like, one acre per this many animals. It's, like, a lot of, like, eyeballing it for me. So um, it also depends on, like, if there's, like, a drought, if it's not, um, the size and, like, density. But... Pretty much, um, I like to keep animals on like a slice of pasture for like a day, ideally. Um, and say like you're in like an intense drought, I'd probably like uh, make their paddock slice larger so they have like less of an impact. And if I wanted a higher impact, I'd minimize their paddock. And say we're getting like, oh, it's a really great year, like lots of grass regrowth, and I'd make a smaller paddock. Mm -hmm. um, and then yeah, it's just rotating them, and you at least want. 30 days of rest, ideally more if mm -hmm. you like have the pasture land. Um, and, you know, it depends, like, you know, more drought, you would want like a higher rate of rest for sure. sure. It's just, it's kind of like seeing how the pasture looks and how it's like recovering. Um, if it's just like really slow, then you want to like rest longer and wait for like rain to come. Um, it's, it's just like kind of like a, yeah, it's just like almost like a symphony with like the animals and the pasture and just like looking at everything's interacting and just making sure your animals are like, you know, looking happy and content and they can handle those like small paddock sizes without getting too rowdy and, mm -hmm. um, and then adjusting for that. Sure. Sorry if I didn't explain that really well. No, but. I think I get it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering too, in those first few years in, in the soil making, um, it was the animals. Was there no tillage or anything, or, or no over, overseeding? Maybe um, we think maybe a couple years in we mm -hmm. did some frost seeding of clover, some mm -hmm. different clover species. Mm -hmm. But that's mm -hmm. it. Um, no tilling at all, or no like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One yeah. other one other strategy that has worked really well for us is um, is also what's called bale grazing. Mm -hmm. So during the the winter months when most of the grasses have stopped growing. Um, we got this, what's called a bale and roller. Okay. And so it's like a big round bale and there's these spikes that goes through like the core and we pull it on our, the back of our UTV and it rolls out the hay because the hay gets baled in these like, mm -hmm. these rolls just rolled up like dough almost. And um, 
And so that spreads out all this nutrients on the field hmm. and the, all the animals can also spread out and, and eat and they're not competing. Mm -hmm. They're not impacting a, one particular area. So they're really spreading out their impact, you know. It's like a thin field. layer of hay and then they'll eat all the good stuff and leave the stocky stuff with their manure behind. Right. So mm -hmm. it's really great. Um, yeah. There's like, they don't like, yeah muck up the land and mm. they're all spread out and it's really helpful if you have um, multiple species together like Emerson was saying because sure. a big issue is you want to make sure like the weaker animals are getting access to food mm -hmm. and if you can like spread the feed out there's like not that competition that's the only way we could probably mm -hmm. have cows and like sheep together at the same time while feeding hay because it would just be too rough mm -hmm. if we did like full bales sure mm -hmm. cool and so for um kind of a overview picture of, of the whole space. Like I said, I feel like you've been doing on that same spot for six or so years. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, and how many of each animal generally do you have and how many uh, acres are they working on? Um, Good question. In the, in the um, I think there's about 65 grazable mm -hmm. acres right now. And then for numbers, I think our maximums we've had are about... I'd say like around like 35 to 40 cows and that's like calves, uh, yearlings and like cows. Mm -hmm. And then we do about, um, I think like 160 like lambs and ewes, probably like 10 to 15 goats. Mm -hmm. And then we also do a lot of chickens. Um, I think our height was like 2,600 meat chickens. And then maybe like 500 laying hens mm -hmm. and then pigs, some like usually like 30 to 40. Mm -hmm. And then ducks, we just do a hundred because sure. they're, they're great. <laughs> we, <laughs> I wish I could do delicious. more. <laughs> yeah. And they're just such pleasant animals yeah, to work really with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what's, and then in that, you're, that would be considered a small uh, livestock farm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So what's your marketing like in the years? the beginning and, and yeah now, so yeah. we pretty much started off saying we wanted to sell mostly retail so mm -hmm. we do a lot of direct to consumer sales and um that meaning we do like farmers markets we did a csa um we have a little farm store we created those are kind of like our main income sources we also did some wholesaling but it was like a lot smaller mm -hmm. um yeah i think that's Mostly it for sales, but like our, mm -hmm. I think our farmers markets were our biggest income source. Mm -hmm. And then the CSA, um, we had a CSA, but I ended up stopping it when I had Aiden. And mm -hmm. then um, we had it like multiple pickup locations. We had some in like Westchester and like some up here and at other farms we worked with. Yeah. And if I may ask is how does that feel now that it seems like things are not that you can walk away from it, but or that it's running itself, but it's pretty well established now. Yeah. 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 I feel like we have like kind of everything like, yeah, dialed in so mm -hmm. I can like step away to have, you know, a baby and stuff. And mm -hmm. it's just like the labor, <laughs> mm -hmm. but like, you know, I don't have to worry about the sales as we do a year round farmer's market and like our, you know, wholesale was like pretty regular and things like that. So mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. It's probably the only way I could do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, and you still have room for incidentals and emergencies and things like that in your in your budget and your schedule as well. It sounds like, like, 
Well, um, vet bills and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we try to account for, like, unknowns and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Yeah. And I, I bring that up just because I'm so impressed with your rise and, mm-hmm. and how well you have, are standing as a, as a livestock business. Um, just with Woven Stars, it's been really impressive. Mm, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, farming is definitely a lot of hard work. It's a lot of, uh, there's there's a lot of really great upsides to that life, but it's also something that we realized from the get-go that it was going to be hard, you know, definitely to start a farm business, like, financially and mm-hmm. and what, um, what goes into that. And if we really couldn't have done this without like the support of the community that we live in right and uh, all of our customers at the farmers markets all the local customers friends family you know and it's like we're able to to live that dream and like continue it because of that um even though we've you know put other other careers on hold we want to like you Mm -hmm. know really and acknowledge like how how um we didn't do this alone. There's definitely sure. a lot of support along sure. the way. So, yeah, also from other farmers in the area, too, that mm-hmm. gave us guidance, gave us support, um, and led the way. And then we lease um, the land that we're on with Woven Stars, we lease it. So we're incredibly grateful for, like, the landowners to, like, mm-hmm. allow us to... Uh, you know, steward their land and build their build their soils and diversify um, all the the wildlife and plants as much as possible. So that's because it's really in our area. It is very difficult to imagine like our farm like being able to support like owning land and mm-hmm. the cost of land in the Hudson Valley. Um, even though we feel like we're doing we're doing pretty good for like our size and and everything and we have our good markets it's still just a the cost of of land and living in our area has just gone up so much um yeah. and that might be um an issue that we will have to address as like a community mm-hmm. or as like a region and or as farmers uh in the future is like how can people still remain farming sure. on the land? Oh, yeah. And what do we have to do? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I want to come back to that. Maybe, yeah. maybe if not this episode, on a whole yeah. focus. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, that's its really own thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's, as I said, it's, I'm just so impressed with, with how you both have kind of brought Woven Stars up to the place that you're in now to support starting a family and mm. starting uh, another venture, mm. uh, Arthur's Point. Yeah. Yeah. And tell me about that. Yeah, so um, about three and a half, four years ago, um, so simultaneously with um, with Woven Stars, I was still dabbling in the, the horticulture and helping people um, establish uh, different trees and gardens and, and design and everything. And so um, one of those friends and clients um, approached me and was like, well, like, let's, let's try to do this as a business. Let's try to, you know, grow these crops so that other people can have access to these particular trees Mm -hmm. that, um, that you're growing for, for going on my land. And so that was kind of how Arthur's Point started. And so we started to, so with about a 10 acre, uh, abandoned field in a, in a forest corridor and, I came up with a, a design for uh, various agroforestry models. Mm-hmm. Now, agroforestry 
is um, just how it sounds, agricultural, agriculture and forestry. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a, a several systems uh, in agroforestry that are recognized. One's um, what's called forest farming, which okay. is whether it's uh, medicinals or mushrooms or different types of understory crops, um, growing those like shiitake logs would be an example of that. Mm-hmm. Um Another one is uh, alley cropping, so growing trees among existing annual crops Mm -hmm. or perennial pastures uh, used for hay. Uh, The other one is silvopasture, and silvopasture is the combination of trees and um, livestock, Mm -hmm. which is something that at Woven Stars we're doing a lot Mm. of. Um, mostly just by just leaving trees in the paddock that were already regenerating. And we felt like, and we immediately started to see the impact of like how beneficial trees are for livestock and how those should be just so, so tightly combined in every system as Mm -hmm. possible for, for shade, for fodder, uh, just general livestock well-being, um, So some of the first initial years we did, Woven Stars did move some of our livestock to Arthur's Point Mm -hmm. to help manage invasive species around this this particular area. Um, But now we're we're just working on um, just planting trees out for unexisting farms and fields. And then um, and then the the next system of agroforestry is um, what's called windbreaks. Okay. So windbreaks are basically establishing uh, dense plantings um, along open fields or different corridors to really slow down what it sounds like, break yeah. the wind. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, they became really popular back in like the 20s during like the, the Dust Bowl, and they really wanted to promote um, systems that would stop erosion. Mm-hmm. So they planted like millions of acres of windbreaks across like the the Midwest, um, which now they've been taking out ever since. Thanks, Earl Butts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, so we at Arthur's Point um, specialize in mostly woody plant, tree, and shrubs that have um, an edible component. Um, they serve in ag- agroforestry systems, um, ideally native as well for like different ecological plantings. Um and also just particular species just serve or what are known as like keystone species. Mm-hmm. So they really have a great, great effect on local ecology. They're supporting other, other species that are, um, whether at risk or failing or really need our support, um, whether it's based on like particular bloom times or just the absence of them in our system. So yeah, so we're, um, a bare root and potted nursery, and we grow about 15,000 bare root trees and shrubs annually and um, distribute them all the way from Georgia out to Arkansas Mm -hmm. and Missouri, Iowa. Um, So we ship basically all across like the eastern central um, U.S., and uh, and also, but most of our customers are actually right here in the Hudson Valley. Yeah. So we sell um, a bunch of plants, um, you know, to neighboring farms um, for anything from just having a, an edible plum tree or a chestnut tree in their yard 
to um, planting a whole hedge system to restoring a, like a wildflower meadow. Mm -hmm. So we've really um, expanded that and grown. And um, my main job and function there is just the farm manager and mm -hmm. like, you know, keeping everything going, bringing new plants in, um, discontinuing ones that we feel like maybe aren't, you know, ones that are appropriate for our goals and our systems. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, so it's been, that's been really exciting and it's grown really fast. Um, we've also produced um, biochar from various forest products mm -hmm. on the land. So whether a tree falls down naturally or has been um, taken out by some disease or pest, such as like the emerald ash borer, mm -hmm. um, we... We'll cut, you know, if it's not already fallen down, we'll cut it down, we'll buck it up and we, we produce biochar. And that is like one of our main ingredients going into our compost, which Arthur's Point gets from Lizzie's uh, livestock bedding. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so we make um, a very, uh, a, about 10% biochar to uh, compost um mix and put the biodynamic preps in it and um, really keep it at the appropriate temperature. And that's why we're able to grow just like so many trees on such a small area that are just so healthy with amazing root systems. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Yeah. And that just for, so the listeners who may not know, biochar is superheated charcoal, basically, or wood made into charcoal. Yep. Um, is, yeah. is, am I getting anything else with that? Or if yeah, more it, yeah, it's pretty much yeah. exactly what you said, Seamus. Mm -hmm. It's um, it's essentially charcoal, mm -hmm. and it it uh, it's void. It's like basically cooking wood or any mm -hmm. anything in an oxygen deprived environment, mm -hmm. and it's a chemical process that occurs in that sort of environment called pyrolysis. Sure. Um, pyrolysis, sorry. With a no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so that um, pyrolysis is, is the turning of that wood into the charcoal. Mm -hmm. And the way that, so, the, so that energy is still there, that carbon's still there. And in a terrestrial carbon cycle, uh, a tree typically falls down. The tree, you know, is colonized by different types of mushrooms. Mm -hmm. The mushrooms break it down. They release some CO2 uh, through that breakdown process. And then uh, there is a lot of carbon that goes back into the soil through the buildup of that organic carbon, sure. organic matter. That's uh, in the form of mainly glomalin, right? In the, that the, as we've spoke about in a previous episode with mm -hmm. John Feldman, how fungi do this breakdown and, and the carbon that they leave is in this kind of a gooey substance, yeah. humic kind of matter state. Yeah. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. like the, it's like the exterior part of like the um, mycelium, right? Like mm -hmm. lomelin. Yeah, yeah. That like sheds off as it dies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, so it's leaving that. So there's definitely a certain percentage like naturally that is being like sequestered into the earth mm -hmm. through that natural decaying process. But with the terrestrial carbon, if you take that uh, carbon source, which is through the tree, 
and you make it into charcoal, you're capturing a lot more of that carbon. And the only way that the carbon is able to be released again is through burning. Right. So, and that energy is given off with the heat. So like when, when we're, you know, when we're grilling up, you mm -hmm. know, food on our grill, all that heat that is like coming off is that, that carbon from that reaction. Yeah, and bonding with the with the open air oxygen, which you don't have, which is why yeah. it doesn't burn yeah. in when you're making it. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So it's like starved for that oxygen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what we do, so we use, so biochar is really, a, it's a soil amendment. Mm. Okay. Um, it's a, it's a habitat for various microorganisms that live in the soil. It's extremely porous with a lot of different openings that they can live. And the and, carbon bonding sites. I think that's the key point there is that because for people who don't understand you know, biochemistry, which I don't, but <laughs> from what I do get, it's that carbon has eight bonding sites per atom. Correct. And so, and it is not picky about what it bonds with. Mm -hmm. So having all those bonding sites open and available in your soil system allows you to make, or the soil to make these uh, places where, as you said, these ecologies at a micro, super micro, elemental level, molecular level to be able to bond, you know, to stay in that matrix. It is mm. basically creating a matrix place where, you know, the ecology can, the microecology can thrive. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Versus a soil that's just all, you know, sedimentary, you know, mineral rock mm. without that much available carbon bonding sites. You know, it's, you know, things like water and um, other nutrient just wash away, mm. you know, in, in an event. Yeah. 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 It really is able to just like, yeah, just hold the soil together and, mm -hmm. and create that structure. Yeah. I've never even thought about it as like, yeah, down to that molecular level of like carbon being that like that one element that has all that potential mm -hmm. and to connect everything else. And that's mm -hmm. what it's really doing. It's connecting everything in the soil, yeah. um, this like communication within the soil. And you really start to notice it um, when you're working with it every day and, and really growing plants in it. Um, greater resistance to drought, you know, it stays, it's like it absorbs any excess water and holds it. Um, if you have even like, I, f I feel like they should be using it even in conventional agriculture, they'll probably not have to use as many like synthetic, like fertilizers, for example. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think there's a lot of potential in it. We just produce it at a very small scale. Um, but I think that, you know, as one of the, the tools in the toolkit of mm -hmm. regenerative farming and, uh, you know, farming for a changing climate, it's one of those many things. Um, at Woven Stars, we've, you know, we feed it to our pigs, our chickens, our goats. Sure. And it just acts like, you know, any 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 other charcoal would, you know, it's like an activated charcoal that we'd ingest if there's any the pigs micro in particular, like, go for it. Interesting. I was, yeah. like, really surprised by that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it goes through their digestive system and it is like inoculated. And then, um, yeah, so it's, so it's a real, yeah, interesting technology that's been used for 
it's ancient. thousands and yeah. thousands of years, but has really just gotten this like renaissance of interest because of its implications for uh, storing carbon for thousands of years mm-hmm. um, in the soil, but then also increasing agricultural resistance and resilience um, to all these different outside influences. Sure. Yeah. That seems to be a trend in, in regenerative agriculture, that there is a renewal of old practices mm. and cultural um, approaches to working with the land. Uh, and, uh, you know, either Woven Stars or Author's Point, are you are there other kind of things that you're rediscovering or, or methodologies that you're bringing back alive again in mm. your approach to your practices? Let's see. I mean, the, the rotational grazing alone is that's yeah. a huge thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah of yeah. course. I mean, I feel like everything, um, mm. yeah, just trying to think of, like, what in particular, but I feel like... I think just, definitely the, like, the uh, like the integration of the trees and the livestock. Yeah. Because yeah. the, the more you read about it and understand it, the more you see that it, that has been a common practice among agricultural communities for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, even simple um, practices of pollarding and coppicing um, have been for the use of um, livestock fodder. Um, there's these whole, what are called um, air meadows. So it's like these trees that you just Pollard, which is pollarding, is the cutting of the tree above browse height. Um, it's a real common. It's a common practice that you see in a lot of European uh, towns. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple examples around in the Hudson Valley. I see a lot of like pollard willows, for example, mm-hmm. and it's just kind of. So you get a lot of this, like, you know, it's almost like a club head that forms on this cut site, and they just keep sprouting out. Sure. Um, now that was traditionally used because they wanted to um, they wanted really young branches to feed to livestock, um, okay. and they also wanted to utilize um, these long thin branches so they'd eat the leaves. But then the branches they could use for weaving baskets for different types of arts that they they really need or mats and mm-hmm. or even just um, firewood for starting fires. Yeah. Um, so, also, just like yeah. bringing livestock just around trees for like the the fruit or nuts they produce, mm-hmm. like bringing a, like apple drops that are just like rotten. You can bring like pigs and chickens around there, goats mm-hmm. to eat the drops, and um, mm-hmm. same with like nut trees. Yeah, with like the pigs particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, Sounds like one of the big uh, benefits of working regeneratively, especially in a diversified systems, um, is cost reduction compared to conventional farming are you seeing that have you you are there places where you've over time been able to save money by doing things a little bit differently or haven't even to think about certain aspects of other people's expenditures when it's not a problem for you because of the way that you farm yeah i think about just like grass-fed livestock for sure um not having to feed hay year-round not having to like grow corn and grain and our like neighbors do that and I'm like, it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> they have like, you know, the land to grass fed. I don't know why like why it just seems like so much more expensive to me. Um just seems like a no no brainer mm-hmm. and the animals are a lot healthier as well. Your animals are. Yeah, I, yeah. I would say like all like grass fed animals are healthier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And they get um 
yeah, because like they're just getting the best medicine every day is I feel like just the, you know, they've evolved for, you know, thousands of years to eat something and then we're giving them something else and we, we wonder why they, you know, get bloat and they get all these other issues. Um, so it's like giving them what they're evolved to eat sure. and every day a fresh buffet of that I think is just really amazing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we, one thing that, I feel like is the, is the advantage is that um, we've been lucky that we haven't had to buy a tractor. Um, wow. That is something that is a huge expense. Like, you know, tractors now, like the one that like some of these other farms are using are like, you know, $80,000, $100,000. You know, you're going into extreme amount of debt. Um, we also, because our land isn't... Um, really equipped for haying equipment. So we buy in our hay. That's our biggest expense. Mm -hmm. But we also feel like we're buying in seed. We're buying in fertilizer. Mm -hmm. We're buying, you know, in fertility. And so the more we can build up our soil, the longer season we can graze, sure. the higher quality food we have. So it's like, it's this investment in the land and it's going back towards that an investment in the land, an investment in the animals, and not in metal and, yeah, you know, and equipment and plastic. Mm -hmm. And that's where I feel like we have a an advantage, um, definitely compared to, like, more traditional systems. Um, I see, you know, we're surrounded by conventional farms. Their, their combine, I know, is you know, that they're like, you know, cutting corn and grain. It's like, I know that that's a quarter million dollars. Yeah. And I know that like no farmer can afford a quarter million dollar piece of equipment. Sure. Like they're going into debt, you know, they're, they're paying it off slowly. And it's a system that is, I think, really plaguing agriculture is like these expenses that are really unaffordable and you know they're just locking farmers into this like mm -hmm. this slavery towards like paying off this debt a lot of a lot of farmers function with like um like, credit. yeah yeah revolving credit and you know borrowing from like the big places like farm credit east you know that have you know pretty high interest rates we were lucky when we first started off that we worked with this organization over in the Berkshires called uh, Berkshire Ag Ventures, and they gave us a low interest loan to get started, uh, to buy our livestock, to buy you know the the bare essentials like fencing and and all mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Very, very minimum things, you know, to to get a vehicle so we can bring product to the markets, and um, and without an organization like that. If we had to go to some of these bigger farm lenders, you know, at six, seven percent interest rate, you know, mm -hmm. we'd be still paying it off today. Sure. Um, so yeah, and yeah. that's not, and that's that's. I don't want to diss on any in particular business. I mean, I do I do business with Farm Credit East, so I enjoy the work that I <laughs> Sorry, do with are them. They, are they a sponsor? Of the <laughs> They're podcast? not a sponsor. Right, we don't right. have any sponsors. <laughs> Thankfully, we could cut well, that we out. Could, yeah. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, but th th that is to say, you know, that they are an approachable, organic kind of um, community-oriented business, and it's still even kind of getting locked into mm -hmm. this traditional financing model where it's even worse when you get into the USDA and, and 
uh, Cargill and some of these other larger mm. you know, seed companies where these broadacre, as they say down under, broadacre mm. farms, these massive thousand-acre operations of monocrop mm. agriculture or CAFO uh, animals where you ha- you, in order to get the funding, you have to or a farmer would have to sign on to the whole system of buying the seeds specifically from mm. Monsanto, buying the Roundup to control the seed, and that's to grow the corn mm-hmm. to feed your cows that are stuck on in, in confinement, mm-hmm. um, never seeing grass, let alone tasting it, and all of that is you know in in a single farm in in the black or in the red in in the in, to the tune of millions just to get started mm-hmm. and. It does seem when you look at the time scale of how it's been operating and then the lifestyle that these people can live and, you know, the generational return of, you know, um, you know, the kids to the farm to t- take it on, mm. you know, it does seem like it's, it is a little bit of a debt, not just a little bit, it, it's very much looks like debt slavery mm-hmm. and, and a way of like kind of separating the, hu- the culture, like the society from the land, from the food production as much as possible and to kind of create an underclass of people who work that land in a way where they they'll never nothing they can never really own any of it and that seems to be a trend across the agricultural industries in any situation where being able to own your own piece of land and to work it in a way where you can you know be in the community and raise family and you know be healthy and support yourself it it seems like there's I don't want to say it's intentional, but there's, it's pretty hard to achieve, and y'all are doing so, you know, in your own way, and you are finding these little avenues, you know, cracks in the wall to get through it, um, and that's really admirable. Mm. And and I and I, I thank you for bringing up the the the, no, the point that there are avenues if you look hard enough, and you can and you can accept a little bit of, you know, piece by piece getting there mm-hmm. to, you know, eventually hopefully owning, but or at least owning your operation, if not the land that you're on, mm-hmm. or, you know, being able to, you know, imagine that you'll be out of debt, you know, before your kids get out of high school, mm-hmm. you know, which some people can't even think of that, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. 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 There's, I mean, one, yeah, it's like the, the land in our area is extremely expensive compared to other parts of the world or the country even, um, you know, because of our location mm-hmm. of like being in the Hudson Valley, being so close to New York, being yeah. close to all these other large cities. Um, but then also there is this um, this market of people that appreciate that work. They appreciate the the products that we produce, the, you know, the, the, the clean, healthy food as uh, generated from our farm. Um, and also there's there's folks that have created organizations to help support farmers, like mm-hmm. like Berkshire Grown, Berkshire Ag Adventures, like I mentioned, um, organiza- land um, organizations like uh, CLC. Columbia Land Conservancy. Uh, yeah, yeah, Columbia Land Conservancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Scenic Hudson, all these organizations that are um, in support and in service of like trying to to make farmers farm the land that we all live in mm-hmm. and keeping that here um, and and having also just yeah because it's it's been since we first started farming 
um, not to get like depressed or you know or anything, but there has been something that we've been noticing is like there's been a lot less farmers like us, like young you know farmers that are like going at it and being like, all right, let's start a farm, let's mm -hmm. find land, let's do this, let's grow, you know, whether it's vegetables, livestock, anything. And it's um, maybe we're just more in like a bubble these days in our older age, but we um, we feel like that's just been really, um, really evident, especially in the last couple of years of where are the farmers going? Why isn't there more farmers like us when we started six years ago? We only hear about farms closing, huh. yeah. and we only hear about maybe these farms that are extremely well financed uh, starting up, um, and not farms that are like just you know just wanting to just go for it. and And that is a trend I think that um, we need to recognize and and address. and And how can we support other farmers? And how can we go out there and, you know, and give the people the tools and, and help them to, to start farms too. Sure. Yeah. So. I guess that's one of the most, um, limiting challenges, at least right now for independent, um, sole proprietors and, and family farms and new ventures mm. trying to break into the regenerative ag market mm -hmm. or any kind of ag market, but especially that, um, at least here in the Hudson Valley, mm -hmm. because I think you make a good point that things have changed even in just the last five years. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you count that, what we're in 2023, from 2018 to now, we've had the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. We've had a mass exodus from especially New York City of people with means finding their way upstate and changing the the value of things just because of the increase of their demand. Mm -hmm. And not just... Well, in some ways, good ways, you know, increasing the demand of the more than organic, you know, produce and, and meat and, and, and goods that you can find at farmer's markets, but also by their proximity and of where they're buying, what they're doing, increasing the cost of living and the cost of operation for a lot of these, you know, shoestring, you know, small community farm operations and just the communities in general mm -hmm. that have been here uh, perennially you know, since settler colonialism to now, and uh, who have as much of a right to be here, I think, as anyone else, but now they, they, they can't even make ends meet in the same way. Mm. Um, so that would be, you know, speak to something like land access for these, you know, new farmers um, and means of getting to market. You know, th it doesn't seem like there's a shortage of markets now, mm. um, but as far as just having the operational time to get there mm -hmm. and the, over, you know, your ends met on farm to get the production there to be ready to show up for that. Um, it's not the way it was, at least when I started in, you know, 2010, 2011, 2012, when it was, it was a little bit of like a, a farming renaissance happening here, a CSA mm -hmm. specifically mm -hmm. renaissance happening here, which is probably why you all, had the comfort and ability to get started when here when you did mm. it seems like yeah yeah for sure that's you know yeah that was like when yeah it was a little bit different time mm -hmm. it felt like and definitely in the last couple of years i've we've reflected on that and we're like 
things are changing and yeah. things are different now than they were back then. Yeah. And, you know, not to say it's, you know, better or worse, it's just different. And it's a different climate for sure. farmers and it's a different climate for starting farms mm-hmm. um, than back then. And it has gotten, interestingly enough, kind of uh, at least the lifestyle, the the fantasy of farming has become mainstream, which I think is part of the allure for the the move of those with means who are coming here. A lot of people are, and I don't mean to call anyone out in saying this, but just from our, the perspective of people who have been here forever, not forever, but who have been here mm-hmm. most of our lives, who uh, have been in the farming world maybe our, our entire life, mm-hmm. it does seem like there's a little bit of uh, costume play happening with some of the market, the people who are moving here who for the lifestyle but aren't ready to live the life. Mm-hmm. And and I think that there's like a little bit of a divide happening between those who people who are in earnestly you know authentically there to be farmers like who are really taking it on and not just to be farmers but they want to produce a product, mm-hmm. they want to make a living, yeah you know who who are serious about it and serious about the realities of what it takes to really be farmers and to really make a living from your farm and to help grow community out of it. Um, it's the people who take that seriously seem to not be able to you know, have the access, it seems, more and more here. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a real tragedy because you have, like in your cases, you have Woven Stars and Arthur's Point that I think you guys hit the sweet spot about when to get here and how you marketed to and how you've turned what you were marketing into really saleable products. Because I'm, I mean, when I go to Arthur's Point and I see what you're selling as far as bare root and as well as the, the biochar, I'm just... And it's only been three years. Mm-hmm. You know, you guys have been ready to go with it, mm-hmm. and and I'm really, really impressed. Mm-hmm. That said, in in your work on Arthur's Point, are you finding uh, that you're doing very much um, s- selection and and breeding of different trees? And because it seems like I'm just getting a hint of it that there's uh, a real initiative toward climate resilience that's happening, mm-hmm. both in the, in the ways that you both are farming, but also in 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 being a nursery mm-hmm. and producing w- these woody creatures mm-hmm. that yeah. um, can be a real key for us here in, in the face of this climate crisis. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of species that we have decided to grow that are kind of these fringe species that right now are unpredictable in terms of producing crops. Um, I'm thinking mostly about species such as um, northern pecan, Mm. um, American persimmon, um, some other types of hybrid persimmons between Asian and American persimmon, and which are just on this, this edge. But as we all know, the climate models are predicting a much warmer climate in 20 years from now. And the thing about trees is that they take decades to reach their full potential and their um, their production in some cases. Mm-hmm. So from from the onstar I I really wanted to to get these particular trees out in the community. I wanted to we planted hundreds thousands of them on the actual farm and I think that those hold the key and growing them from seed as well. Mm. So seeds just in in the nature of them have this built-in climate resilience because they have extreme genetic diversity. 
So some are going to have a particular resistance to a pest that might evolve from now. Some might have a little bit more cold hardiness or leaf out a little bit later to avoid a frost or flower a little bit later. Um, so having that growing from seed, selecting species that are maybe two or three zones warmer, you know, that will eventually be up here. Also trees that just like there's particular trees that exist in the Northeast that are at risk based on very, like we don't grow Eastern hemlock, for example, because mm -hmm. of the woolly dalgid. Um, I would love to grow it and maybe there's like seed out there that holds that key, but from a climate and adaptability perspective, it probably wouldn't be the best to restore your forest with that tree because it might very likely will be dead, you know, mm -hmm. in a X number of years. Um, we also, one of the, um, the goals of our 10 acre, uh, food forest that we originally planted was to have this selection process in mind. So we've planted, um, extra dense, you know, this chestnuts will mature to about a 40 to 30 foot spacing, um, Chinese chestnut, you know, very spreading, um, very large trees that you want to get light all around the entire canopy to get good production. We planted them on about 20 by 20 foot spacing with wow. the idea of uh, thinning about half of them out over time. Okay. We have every tree um, marked and cataloged. Um, we collect particular data on each of the tree based on vigor, um, growth. Also the earlier, like just because eventually when they reach production, um, also do they produce annually? What size nuts they have? Are the nuts susceptible to blossom end rot or any of these other um, higher weevil pressure? Um, that data will be collecting, but also some at year three have already started to produce male catkins. Okay. Now, what does that mean for future production? You know, it's reaching this sexual maturity that's able to like start producing nuts soon, but does that mean that tree is going to live longer and over its lifetime produce more, more nuts? Not necessarily. It might be just putting all of its energy into those early years of production mm -hmm. and then we want a tree that can live a hundred years, maybe not start producing until year 15, but has, you know, 75 years of good production opposed to one that starts producing at year five and only has maybe 20 years. Sure. So the idea is to have crops that can live over that period of time. And so we'll, uh, we'll go through, we'll thin, we'll select based on the climate, but then also just the climate and nature just selects on its own. Sure. You know, we're not coddling these trees. We're not, we give them, um, you know, good mulch. We'll, we'll take care of them. If they're being eaten by spongy moth, we'll pick those off. Um, but we're really trying to, to let nature guide us towards like the trees of the future. Mm. And that I think is like really important. And when you start using intense, uh, you know, chemical interventions, you're really masking problems that you're going to have. Like if, if, as if you take that away, 
the tree's going to die, you know, because it's reliant on that. And you've been masking these underlying issues um, by pumping it full of fertilizer or pumping it, you know, spraying it with an insecticide or a fungicide. Um, so I, my goal is like, if we were just like to walk away from the farm at any day, these trees will be able to take care of themselves mm-hmm. and hopefully, you know, outlive us all. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> the plan. Huh? Yeah. yeah. That's great. Yeah. So thinking about other questions or, or some of the possible solutions that people throw out for questions of climate change. And a big one is that we should all be vegan because animal uh, agriculture is so destructive to the land and, and is so unethical in that we raise our animals and, and attend to them um, and kill them and butcher them and eat them. So do you feel that that is, is true? Is, that, that, is there like an answer to that from this kind of regenerative ag mindset? Specifically yeah. around like being yeah, vegan. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely important to distinguish how the animals are raised. Um, if it's going to be a confined barn and they're just fed like corn and soy their whole life, that's a lot different than a pasture-raised animal living off of like just grass and helping spread its fertility and like fertilizing the soil and um, being rotationally grazed. Um, so the obviously the factory farmed animal is going to be a lot less, um, more like negative impact on the environment. Like the way it's manure is handled is like toxic. Um, mm-hmm. the way the, the feed is grown for that animal is not good. Um, it's like GMO industrial, like there's no diversity in it. Um, like a grass fed animal that's rotationally grazed there. It's supporting like the animal supporting like the grasses in the pasture, it's also supporting like the ecology around the whole farm. I mean, just the, just the, the case in point of how, what, what the land is, how the land has changed at Woven Stars over the last few years. It, it's, that's just, I mean, I've had the luxury of being able to see it before and after. We couldn't have done it without the livestock. There's no mm-hmm. way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I, I think as a culture, we, we consume too much crappy meat. I think what it comes down to, and I, um, you know, I admit that, and there's, there's definitely the way that the meat we eat and how it's raised, like Lizzie was saying, has a very severe impact on climate and mm-hmm. the world. Um, also, just an impact on our human well-being as well. Like we should be eating nutrient-dense meat that's raised in the proper form, which is on the land and on pasture. And you were like, if everybody had access, which I, I hope, you know, one day everybody can have access to, to meat that's raised in that way, in that fashion, we, you would need less of it. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't need to eat, you know, a half a pound of beef to feel like, those nutrients that we're craving from a primitive, like, you know, evolution need of like having this high protein, um, we'd be able to eat less and and get that that nourishment that we need. Um, we really would have a better impact on the world in terms of sequestering carbon through these animals instead of emitting all these greenhouse gases through like what Lizzie was saying of like how they were raised. Yeah, so, the big a big question that, you know, is put out in the media lately. It's been a while since I've heard this argument with the farting cows and, and, and mm-hmm. the methane released from that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, people at the same time, all these new contracts going in for shale fracking for mm -hmm. uh, natural gas. Mm -hmm. when, why don't we just, you know, there are already designed systems for creating natural methane, ma natural gas, mm -hmm. capturing it in um, compost systems, basically. Mm -hmm. And then we could make our natural gas instead of having to go mine for it and destroy whole landscapes and communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, having that distinction of like, yeah, how they are raised, I think is is really important. Because um, the argument can be made again and then the converse to say, you know, everyone needs to be vegan and that's how it's going to be, be work. But at the same time, however many acres of um, virgin rainforest are being cut down now in order to produce, you know, monocrop palm for palm oil or all of the, you know, we drive by all of these monocrop fields of soy beans. Now, I don't know if that's necessarily mm -hmm. for- Do you like all the erosion yeah. of all that, like every tilling, just mm -hmm. like the topsoils mm -hmm. being washed away when it mm -hmm. rains and everything. It's That's not happening on like a grass-fed operation because mm -hmm. you have those like the root structures just holding everything there. All the mice that aren't getting yeah. destroyed by tillers <laughs> yeah. now have habitat. The, in, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Oh yeah, all the different rodents that are yeah. killed all the time with like, yeah, crop production. Yeah. Home. <laughs> As I mean, just yeah, uh, uh, just being human, you know, being born into this world, like we all have this, um, just to just to live. I feel like we we whether you choose to be vegan or choose to be a carnivore, we all have this like this unsustainable impact, you know, in just the world we kind of live in today. In this, yeah, in, in in our society, in our culture, American monoculture. Yeah, 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 you know, it's like we we all have blood on our hands, kind of, you know, in varying degrees of like how how we've treated the earth and how, yeah, the displacement of yeah wildlife and just like our mm -hmm. systems that we decide to, um, to 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 have a part of our, our world. And mainly out of sort of an addiction to convenience mm. and, and, and a, a desire to have someone else figure it out for you so you don't have to think about it. I mean, this conversation, you know, vegan or carnivore or urbanite or rural person or whatever, however you want to look at it, it really kind of comes down to, um, well, a big question is, as we are we as humans um, not meant to be here because of the way that we treat the world? Or are, is there a specific opportunity that we have to, you know, attend to our responsibilities here and what we take by doing so in a way that it's making more from how we're taking it, um, which is kind of the hope of what regenerative ag is kind of putting forward, is that in the way that we do our, you know, obtain our yield, we are at the same time creating not just one-to-one, -one, but million times fold over and over again, you know, of production of things, allowing the creatures to be as they are in the space in a way that is naturally given to them, thereby in partnering with the way that is in a way that can work for us as in, in being these stewards and also having a, a, a functioning society. Not even so f that much different from, you know, what we are accustomed to, you know. I don't want to put down the whole last century and a half of, of you know, quote-unquote progress that we've made especially technologically, because it's brought on this massive cultural shift in the last 50 to 100 years. Um, that has had some negatives, plenty of negatives, but also a lot of benefit, I think, 
the fact that we can even talk about this in a way right here and now where we have so many different points of reference about, you know, the data that we're talking, that we're coming up with and, you know, however many centuries it took to get to that point of even transferring this knowledge from generation to generation or from culture to culture, we didn't have this kind of speed that we have now. Um, and I think that there's a chance to take the best of what we've created for ourselves and apply it. As you mentioned, you have ways of uh, collecting all this intricate data on these new species that you, not new species, but cultivated species that you're working with at Arthur's Point. You know, data collection, the means of using that technology in an integrated way to these landscapes is going to do however much could cut, you know, decades off of our, you know, response time to this climate crisis. Because now that's shareable. Now that, I mean, are you working with um, organizations like Cooperative Extension Office? Are you, are you doing research projects? With, is that some part of your plan at all this point? So we have we have one ongoing research project. It's um, through this organization called uh, SARE, um, Sustainable Agriculture. I forget that. Research acronym. Enterprises. Yeah, something, yeah, yeah, Sarah, something yeah. along those lines. Mm -hmm. I think it's through the, technically through the USDA. S-A-R-E, I think is. Uh, yeah, S-A-R-E, SARE. And uh, yeah, so we we took baseline carb like deep carbon cores of this particular area that we planted out with for um, in agroforestry, and we also took data from um, yeah leaf tissue analysis, soil samples, um, you know, doing a complete microbial analysis of what's there. So our goal is, and then we did different treatments of um, different uh, representations of how you can apply biochar hmm. uh, to these particular plots. So one is just raw biochar, um, which is, um, as the research shows, is not recommended because the first um, couple years, what it does is it pulls in nutrients from the surrounding soil, mm -hmm. um, which then uh, deprives the roots of the plant that you're trying to grow of those nutrients. Yeah. Um, but maybe over long term, it could have a more beneficial effect by slowing down the, the initial growth, perhaps. So, And then we did uh, the biochar compost, so co-composted biochar. And then we did another with just regular compost, no biochar. And then biochar and this, what we call a probiotic um, soil amendment, which has different types of micronutrients that are um, beneficial to the plants that, um, and also uh, minerals. And then there's also a mixture of about uh, 19 different types of mycorrhizae and beneficial rhizobacteria mm -hmm. in it. So if like somebody didn't have access to compost, um, we you can mix this product in, and the biochar will pull in those nutrients and hold them, and all the beneficial microbes will colonize the biochar um, for that. So we're only in year two of that, mm -hmm. so we don't really have anything to report on it. Okay. <laughs> but what I'm really excited about is these deep core samples of the area. Um, which uh, which go down about uh, 30 centimeters, and those cores will tell the story of how an agricultural, like agroforestry, agricultural system can fix carbon, hmm. like long term, deep carbon. 
So most of the, the carbon in your heavily used agriculture system are in the top 10 centimeters of the soil, which are like being plowed and turned over. And so you have a high turnover rate of that carbon. So they, they put stuff in through cover cropping, you know, mm -hmm. uh, different types of amendments, and then it gets tilled up and it gets released. Sure. They tilled up and released. You can get really long-term storage in those lower horizons of the soil. And tree roots um, can get down there more readily than some of the typical mm -hmm. agriculture plants, such as the the grasses and yeah. um, like warm season native grasses. Those those are like the deepest rooted plants, like the prairie grasses that can go like you see like those images yeah. of the For yards and yards. Yeah, yeah. 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 you know those are. Um, I mean, tree roots. Um, there's always that image of like the reflection of the tree and then the roots underneath. Mm -hmm. um, if if it was um, done a little bit more accurately, it'd be more the top, uh, you know, foot of the soil, sure. um, opposed to like going really deep. Like you mm -hmm. get those structure roots down there, but um, yeah. So I think trees offer a solution to to fixing the carbon in the soil and really helping to start store that. Yeah. Um, produce food that can feed us, that can feed animals, that can um, also, like, we always say, like, the more species you can get on a regenerative farm, the more diversity of species, the better. Yeah. You know, if you have, if you started with five species of songbirds and then you end with seven, that's a win. Yeah. <laughs> because those are two species that weren't there originally and it tells us that we're doing something that's in the right direction mm -hmm. by enhancing those natural ecosystem yeah. function, which will in turn help our farm. Yeah. I mean, just you mentioned earlier before about having the beetles, like the dung beetles around mm -hmm. when you, they were, didn't, weren't even around before that. I mean, we've kind of touched before on another episode about the importance of that, you know, deep horizon, um, multiculture of different plants and, and animals that are able to show up and you know do the work of pulling that you know surface nutrient down underground so it doesn't get washed away or burnt to a crisp um, just like being on top of the soil mm. so that's really beautiful that you're you're in being diverse you are creating habitat for non-domesticated animals non-domesticated plants you know creatures that are just need a home to be that actually end up providing for you valuable um, on-farm services mm. that you would need to you know, in, buy all these tractors or whatever else implements mm. to get do the same thing that a, a dung beetle is doing for you. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. Yeah. I remember yeah. speaking with a, a farmer once and I was, I was telling him about like how the, yeah, I was like, I was like, oh yeah, the, you know, the, the manure is not really incorporating into this new field that we're farming. And I'm like, I was telling him this must be the biology and I'm excited to get like more biology back in the land and there. And he's like, oh, you got to buy this chain harrow and you just drag the chain harrow and you break it all up. And, mm -hmm. you know, and if I, you know, took it as advice, which I was like, well, we can't, we're not going to buy that, you know, yeah. chain harrow to do that. But if I did, I'd be you know, taking out that, that dung beetles habitat to even go in there and I'd be doing more work for myself and then buying another piece of metal yeah. for the farm, yeah. <laughs> which I, which I don't need. And so more work, more expense, 
and then never giving that natural system a chance to take hold and really, you know, integrate back into our farm. It does sound like this place has been really a key part in your initiation and also your growth as uh, farm businesses and as farmers yourself. And you said before that the community really supported you in a big way um, in getting going. You know, could could you imagine doing this anywhere else? Is how big is is the place to the, the way that you farm? Oh, that's a good question. Mm. Um, we've thought about this a lot. We're like, oh, can we like move somewhere more rural where like land's cheaper? I don't know, because we are for right now our biggest markets are like you know, our biggest income is our farmer's markets. And those farmer's markets are like, you know, in Westchester County, <laughs> um, or we did, we did one in Troy. So it's, you know, it is really like dependent on the location. I think people do value food around here and they're willing to pay um, a higher price for good quality organic food. Uh, I think it'd be a lot harder somewhere else. And I think we'd have to revamp our whole like business model into something different whether that be like live animal sales or something. Um, I don't know if we could do or sustain the farm on, you know, farmer's market somewhere else. What do you think? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. At least for Woven Stars Farm, it might be different for Mm -hmm. Arthur's Point Farm. You don't ship, though. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the like there's a lot of um, models that are that are just they just yeah, they just ship their meat all over the country Mm -hmm. which who knows if that's really sustainable you know by packaging up with with uh dry ice and Mm -hmm. insulated boxes that are one-time use and getting in a truck and driving there it's crazy you have to do that yeah Yeah. somewhere like that like they can't sell locally for whatever reason there aren't any markets yeah they're not at the markets yeah you know maybe there's some value for the organic regenerative food um Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. it's wild that's like a thing yeah yeah (laughs) maybe maybe second to to some areas um in like california perhaps like i feel like we're in like one of the most prime market regions mm-hmm. of the country like there's a huge population within new york but then there's also major um metropolitan centers like within two hours of here mm-hmm. um, connecticut massachusetts yeah. yeah 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 even further upstate to the capital region there's yeah yeah so it's like everywhere. yeah it's really um kind of a sweet spot like for what our model currently is of like direct to consumer mm-hmm. Would you find too that because of the just the topography of this place that you kind of you've had you didn't have the option it sounds like to get into you know broadacre you know monocrop because there just isn't that much land that's flat enough to do that I mean mm-hmm. and the land that you had available to you kind of it sounds like it lent itself directly to uh, animal agriculture because it wasn't you wasn't enough soil to grow crop on but it also is a bit hilly. Mm-hmm. So I try to do that, you know, on a tractor sounded a little bit treacherous even. Mm-hmm. So it made perfect sense to put animals on it and move them around on it in a way where, as you said, it's you're creating habitat, creating soil, and, and over time reducing inputs by a massive amount. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's pretty, it's pretty yeah. amazing. Like, at Arthur's point, you guys um, were raising the goats in pretty much just the woods mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. summer. Mm-hmm. You can grow, like, a meat product <laughs> Yeah. In, like, the woods. Sure. Like, you know, I feel like, how else could you do that? On an entirely 
invasive like plant species <laughs> diet. Yeah. You know, so they're they're restoring, you know, native ecosystems. You're raising a high density, high nutrient, you know, nutrient dense uh, protein source. Um, Barberry, wineberry. Yeah, all these honeysuckle. honeysuckle. Yeah, so it was difficult, you know, moving fences and stuff. But it's not the easiest. Yeah, getting around trees. Yeah, it's easy, trees, but. So. <laughs> yeah, but there's, you know, so there's a lot of, um, yeah, livestock, I think, offers a lot more flexibility to, to mm. the land. And there's you, cultural diversity here enough to support it. Because, I mean, if you try to raise sheep and goats for local markets in the Midwest. I mean, unless you're mm -hmm. close to Michigan, you know, it, and I say that cult because of, you know, in um, Muslim culture, there's Ramadan and there mm. is like a tradition of eating lamb and goat. And here we also have a large Haitian community that has no problem eating goat mm. where um, to the American palate, you know, most people don't even think about it as a, as a, as an animal that can be consumed. Mm. Um, and some people think that they shouldn't be at all be consumed. Being here in New York specifically, yeah. there is enough of a, a cultural diversity here to support also the diversity in your production, mm -hmm. which is kind of amazing. Yeah. 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 And we see that like when we go to the markets and like I love just hearing, oh, do you have this particular cut or this particular, can you cut it this way? Because that's the way that my my mother, you know, mm -hmm. from this any particular country of the world would prepare for me. And I want to, you know, yeah. prepare that way for my children. And so it's like connecting with culture. It's connecting with diversity. And yeah, and I just, I love how diverse our customers are and they they share their recipes with us they share just you know stories that are connected to food and mm -hmm. and how they prepare it or how they value it like spiritually and um that's something that i think in our area it's like i i look at that as like just such a strength mm -hmm. you know of mm -hmm. having diversity of people as well sure like we for, we want diversity of animals and diversity of of wildlife and plants on our farm, but then that also leads to a diversity of of people. friends and people. Cool. Yeah. yeah, and that's great. You're able to find that initially, I guess, with the the livestock. Arthur's Point has been a nursery so far, but I imagine you might have uh, an eventual break into um, producing tree crops. Um, you know, everyone loves fruit. It's not so much common unless you know, if people are in the mindset of it already to eat nuts. Mm -hmm. um, do you find that there may be opportunity there for education and a push, uh, like got milk style for nut milks and mm -hmm. this sort of thing for, for to, to kind of bolster a perennial tree crop um, industry here? Yeah, for sure. I think that, um, yeah, when it, you're exactly right. Like when it comes to like, to, to nuts, it is like a very um, cultural thing. Like, mm -hmm. Chestnuts used to be a cultural thing in the United States until the chestnut was pretty much wiped out. Um, and they started at that point importing uh, Japanese and, and Chinese varieties, trying to build it back up. Mm -hmm. But it was already very much lost, you know, and like in rural Appalachia, um, on the streets of New York City, it was like this chestnut harvest comes in and, you know, people were roasting chestnuts on the open fire and everything. Mm -hmm. But now it's like um, Asian and Eastern European cultures, 
that are really driving the market and the demand in our country. Um, but they're also opening the doors and to the direct, like everyday consumer. Hmm. Like there was, um, you know, we have this this annual Nutfest in the Hudson Valley. That's an event that you know people from all all sorts of walks of life real nutty to. folk yeah real up. real nutty culture and they um yeah and you just see you just see all these different types of hickories um chestnuts uh hazelnuts like there's you know walnuts um like i'm on the um the board of the new york nut growers association and we have a real real concerted push to bringing um english walnut into New York, hmm. you know our native walnut, the black walnut, um, is is very popular, but it's not um, up to the the palate of the average consumer because of the thick shell. There's a lot of extra equipment that goes into processing them, but the the English or the Persian walnut um, has a much thinner shell, more more uh, kernel percentage mm-hmm. than to shell. And if we can get something like that established, you know, kind of meet that American consumer where they're at mm-hmm. of like, you know, everybody loves walnuts. There's so many different walnut products. There's walnut oils. Mm-hmm. Um, how can we, you know, grow nuts for, for that as well? Mm-hmm. So right. I think there's, there's a lot of, a lot of potential with nuts um, in, in our region. Yeah. And possibly nationally too. I feel like, what can you imagine? Like, let's have our druthers and envision, you know, what a wholesale conversion from monocrop pesticide, heavy artificial fertilizer agriculture, to a large-scale implementation of regenerative agriculture across, you know, all of these commodity industries. What might that look like? I think that it really starts with smaller farms. I I know that there is um is a focus and a push to implementing these things on a large scale because they have a large impact quickly. Mm-hmm. But I really think it like to have a a true system that is in harmony with nature, building the land, building the soil, building the the, the human health, it has to be more of a grassroots kind of thing. I think it really has to be supporting small farms um, really from the bottom up. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I have a hard time imagining that like thousands of acres of farms that are in conventional right now are going to tomorrow convert. Right. But if there's this like resurgence coming up, I think it that would be the future of that mm-hmm. if this was to take hold. Because like what we're doing is very... It's still extremely fringe. Like we, you go to any other part outside the Hudson Valley, and mm-hmm. most people won't even know the term regenerative, mm-hmm. um, let alone things like biodynamics or even organics, perhaps. Sure. But um, yeah, so I really, um, I really hope that. Like I was standing on the our, on our field, and we're up on a hill, and I was you know, feeding our one of our livestock guardian dogs, and I was looking out over the valley um, because we have a a view facing east and i counted from just from what i saw and i never even realized it because you drive by them every day but there was five separate silos in this 
pretty small valley. Mm-hmm. Like, and it got me thinking. I was like, that was just five separate farms, like probably normal size dairy farms, mm-hmm. just in this really small area. And um, which is amazing. Like that was like how these people live. That was like they just they they had their you know fifty maybe a hundred cows. Um, they had the their silos that they put the the silage into, and they they lived on the land. And like how how would that look if there was five separate regenerative farms in this area? Mm-hmm. It'd be mm-hmm. a much different culture. Like feel everything um mm-hmm. so i think that that's really weird what would be different i really feel like the um the community would be different i feel like the the current situation with um a lot of farms in in our valley is like kind of uh isolation mm-hmm. like i'm doing this i got my head down i'm not really looking to work with other folks. But it's like yeah. kind of a maybe our economic system of like you put your head down, you work, I'm producing this product. Like I don't want to. I think if it was regenerative, like if those are all regenerative kind of farms or we'd, we'd understand, I think, I hope that we're all kind of interconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't feel like our farm ends at our property border. I know my neighbor is not spraying chemicals. Sure. That is like poisoning my family or killing my bees. Yeah. I understand like there's more connectivity between me and my neighbor because we both have a similar view of like how important, like what each other are doing is going to be supporting each other. Where I feel definitely a sense of at times anger towards my neighbors when they uh, do things that they feel like they have to do to make a living. Mm. And it's uh, it's a feeling that really sucks. Yeah. Things like spraying Roundup, for instance? Yeah. 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 Okay. Spraying Roundup. They fly planes over our house that spray fields, mm-hmm. spray orchards. orchards. Right. Yeah. And it just like, it just, it, um, yeah, it just kind of, it's just, it's a, it's a really crappy feeling to like feel like that towards like another farmer yeah. by, by them just making the decisions they feel like they have to do to make a living. Mm-hmm. Where if it was... They're contracted to do a lot of the time. Like they're bound to do that. Otherwise they don't get their payout. Yeah. 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 So my my dream and my vision is to be in an area where, yeah, there there isn't that. And I feel like I can like go to my neighbor and, um, and be like, okay, yeah. Like, do you need, do you need something from our farm or Mm -hmm. do you, can I, you know, and there's not this like property border that like distinguishes us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The edge effect where everything kind of blends into each other naturally as it does in an Mm -hmm. an ecological system that, that seems to be what community does is, you know, when, when people are close in proximity and in, their uh, activity, then they, you know, people just know each other a little bit better. People mm-hmm. are you know, are able to so- support each other that much more. Mm-hmm. I get the feeling too that in in such a in a, a fantastical vision, that the landscape will just be greener. Mm-hmm. Like you'll have you won't see much as much bare earth. You'll have more healthy living, you know, wood ecosystems. You'll have um, maybe 
in a silvopasture situation, you'd have more of a savanna type spaces that are active production, not just of your nut crops and not mm. just of your meat, but both at once and maybe even a third yield or fourth or fifth underneath that you, mm-hmm. you might be ancillary or maybe not even off farm, but mm. you just are, are adding to the service. Mm. Um, I guess when I asked that question, I had this vision of, well, what if we just planted all the monocrop fields in the you know Midwest and all the CAFOs out with all these productive trees um, and then took away all the fencing and managed all of our massive beef industry on horseback again in roving herds. That's maybe a bit wild, <laughs> but at the same time, you're growing oaks and chestnuts and, and other things and hazelnuts here and there, all of which could potentially be part of an integrated industry that you could totally take out the middleman of the pesticides and the fertilizers. Mm. Maybe that's a little bit crazy, mm. but I feel like there could be some scalable opportunity there with not to and i i think your point about localized small regenerative you know farms that is the way it, sh- it, it needs to start um that's the way it works the best and i think there's the the reason for that is that place plays a huge part in the way that we can attend to our production and in the way that we can interact with our communities and there's no substitute to direct relationship that the farmer has with their land and their animals and their their trees and their vegetables that you can't get through systematizing things and laying down a um, you know one fits all approach which it doesn't fit if it doesn't fit like in in the landscape and in the community that's there and I think this is part of back to the really beginning of this show is the question of what is natural. And I think having that room for evolution, room for the diversity, room for the unexpected, I guess, is kind of what allows there to be a little bit more of that play of nature. Is there anything else you wanted to wrap up with or, or say just about your experience working on not one, but two farms in, you know, in the same neighborhood in this really robust community here? Yeah. Working on two farms that are very different also really shows me how interconnected everybody is mm-hmm. and how we can um i think you know even though they're they're far apart producing different things like i was saying earlier like all of woven stars livestock bedding and manure during the winter is feeding and growing these trees that are then growing food crops to the future and building habitat and being dispersed all across the country. And I think that over the last several years, I've really realized like, yeah, we're a small farm, but we can have a great impact on the world. Mm -hmm. And we can, you know, we produce tons of high quality protein that is really feeding you know, people and really giving back to the community. I think some quote unquote farms are labeled farms, but they're not really feeding people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really, from the onset, like Woven Stars were like, we're like, we want to, you know, 
produce what our land can hold and what the capacity is, but we really need to get this food to the people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that impact um, has been just such an amazing journey. And um, it's just been so, so much fun um, having to do it, yeah, with my life partner and raise a family doing it. So yeah. There's yeah. really no greater joy than, like, having your friends and family, employees and community eat your product. It just feels so good. I love, like, um, when our, like, employee always, like, gets meat and stuff and yeah. friends. It's just, like, such a great way to, like, you know, give a gift and give mm-hmm. back to people. And as a consumer, I always feel much better supporting you all than, you know, getting meat somewhere anywhere else, pretty much, to be honest. And that's that's a great, you know, I, I wish it wasn't a, a luxury, you know, it, to, to have to say that that, that that is not just the way that we do it. Um, it's It feels, it's pretty, it's unfortunate, but it, it is it is such a blessing that we can do that here. And that I think y'all stand as such a great model of ways that small farms, new farmers can get a start with the right recipe of a community and market and, and initial support um, and luck, I guess, a lot of time is fi- that finding that land. How enough, if enough people have the access to get started in doing this, that we can make a major shift in the way that our, our markets are uh, you know, meeting the demand. And also the way that we approach, the way we think about marketing in general. You know, if everything is just a commodity and not like a living creature that we have stewarded and raised and given a good life and allowed to live naturalistically, that's a bigger aspect of what the money is that I'm paying for this than anything else, really. It doesn't feel like it's draining my, my, my bank account. It feels like I'm, it's an investment in my place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then with... Arthur's point, I know you guys do a lot of sales. I guess I want to put it out there. If you guys have things that you want to plug, big you know, events happening, um, both for Woven Stars and for Arthur's point, you know, please, what's what's going on in the coming yeah, months? Yeah, so um, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be launching our spring bear root sale at Arthur's point. Um, and um, yeah, so that will continue throughout the winter into the spring um, for shipment or pickup. And then uh, this upcoming spring, we'll also be offering uh, potted trees and then also native wildflowers, too. Mm. So uh, you can, you know, sign up for our mailing list online. Um, You can also check for different updates through social media accounts. Um, And I'm going to also be giving uh, doing a chestnut roast at the Oakdale Park in Hudson, uh, right on the beach there, we're going to have a grill. We're going to be roasting chestnuts. I'm going to give like a, a, a brief but very uh, detailed talk about how chestnuts play in our, uh, you know, cultural history of the area, but then also how they benefit various ecosystems, um, how the American chestnut served as this important tree species in our northeast forest, the Appalachia forest. And, uh, yeah, just enjoying, enjoying the festivities of community. Mm-hmm. So hopefully this is something we can continue every year as kind of a tradition of gathering at the beach. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. So, and yeah. you can find Woven Stars Farm. Um, we have a farm store. And again, it's self-serve. It's pretty much open 24-7 mm-hmm. year-round. And we do a farmer's market in Pleasantville, New York. 
And you can follow our social media account at Woven Stars Farm on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Cool. And at Arthur's Point for Arthur's Point. And we'll put all of this, your info in the show notes too, for people who want to look you up and hopefully be customers for you guys. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. And thank you so much, Seamus, yeah, for putting this guys. on and, mm -hmm. and for everything that you guys do and bringing awareness to this important uh, topic and many other topics. Yeah. So. We're just getting started. Yeah. So. You're building a following. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Thanks again for coming. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach out with any comments or questions, feel free to email us at ourcommonnaturepodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at our.common.nature. .nature.